Good day, everyone. Uh, I'm Andrew. I'm a second year studying genetics and environmental science. I'm reading the Bible for us today. Uh, here at CU, we love to read the Bible because we believe that it is God's Word, and it's how we learn about God and our relationship with Him. Uh, today, we're going to be reading uh, from Hebrews, which is in your booklets on the second page, I believe. Um, and Hebrews is a letter written to a group of Jewish Christians in the first century who were living in Jerusalem. And they were uh, getting uh, persecuted for their belief and were thinking of turning away from Christ. And this is a letter that was written uh, to encourage them to stand firm uh, in Christ. So we're going to be reading uh, Hebrews uh, starting at chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits, and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the, with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, but you will roll them, you will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Thank <laughs> you. 
G'day. My name's Ben. Uh, I'm one of the staff workers here at CU, and uh, it's my privilege to be able to welcome you along to uh, Christian Union. Welcome along to UWA, in fact. After all those uh, years of sort of slogging through endless classes and the anxiety of exams, you've finally made it to further classes and more anxiety and more exams. Congratulations. Now, I suppose that there's a bunch of you who are here just because you couldn't think of anything else to do after school and, you know, everyone else seemed to be going to uni, so you thought you should probably do that. Some of you have no practical skills, and so you thought you'd better come here so that you could get a job. But I presume that most of you are here because you want to know stuff. You want to learn stuff. You want to get to know about engineering or science. You want to learn about arts and design and business. You want to know more about how God's world works. And that's a really good thing to do. It's a great privilege to be able to uh, come and spend three, four, five, however many years the uni can squeeze out of you, to explore God's world. But even more important than knowing God's world is getting to know God. Because after all, it would be a great tragedy to come to uni to learn all this stuff about God's world, but then leave having no better knowledge of God than when you started. It'd kind of be like going to uni with Leonardo da Vinci and then spending all your time just poring over some of his sketches when you could know the man himself. Or it'd be like uh, being in a class with Bruno Mars and then spending all your time sort of examining the detail of Uptown Funk and uh, writing essays on that. If you've been hanging around, if you'd been hanging around in the right circles of Renaissance Italy 500 years ago, you could have hung out with Leonardo da Vinci. You could have got to know him. Get a backstage pass to a Bruno Mars concert and you could strike up a friendship with him. But the question is, can you get to know God? And if so, how? So this semester at Public Meeting, we're kicking off by looking at the book of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. We don't even know much about who it was written to. But we do know that the author mentions mentions Timothy, the protege of the Apostle Paul, so he's clearly moving in those kind of circles. And he's certainly in lockstep with the Apostles in, in saying that God has spoken and so we can know him. So if you've got uh, your hand out there, you might like to have a look at the passage and there's a little outline of the talk on the other side. might be helpful to follow along. Have a look at the first verse in this letter. So the verses are the little numbers next to the sentences and we're looking at chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. You think, well, what's he talking about? And he's talking about the Old Testament, isn't he? The collection of books that Jesus and his fellow Jews referred to as the law, the prophets and the writings. And they record God speaking to and through various people at various times in various ways. He spoke to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He spoke to Moses. 
and through him to the people of Israel. He spoke through Joshua and through the judges, spoke to Samuel, spoke through the kings, spoke through David and Solomon and those who wrote about them. He spoke through Elijah and Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the prophets, and a whole heap of others covering over a thousand years, revealing something about himself and his plans at many times and in various ways. But, says the author of Hebrews in verse 2, in these last days, God has spoken by a son. Now, the NIV says his son, but actually, that's a mistranslation. The original Greek just says by a son, which immediately creates an ambiguity because in the Old Testament, angels are often called sons of God. So in Job chapter 1, for example, we see a heavenly council taking place, all the angels gathered before God, and it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So there's actually nothing unique about God speaking by a son. He did it plenty of times in the Old Testament, not least when he gave the Old Testament law, including the Ten Commandments when he gave them to Moses. So in the book of Acts, chapter 7, the early early Christian Stephen criticises a crowd of people in Jerusalem for failing to obey the law that was given through angels. That God spoke by a son, an angel, would not have surprised any Jewish person. Although it probably makes us, with our sort of Western post-enlightenment, anti-supernatural bias, feel quite uncomfortable. Why are we talking about angels? You know, it feels all a little bit Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? Where you've got elves, and you know the elves are angels, right? Lord of the Rings. Um, You've got elves, and you've got hobbits, and you've got all this kind of stuff, and it feels weird. In fact, the 20th century apologist Francis Schaeffer uh, apparently used to start his university uh, lectures about Christianity by talking about angels, which sounds totally weird. Why would you do that at a university? That's a way to alienate your crowd, isn't it? But his argument was that when he came to universities and he talked there, students and staff assumed that he was talking about a philosophy or a way of life or something like that. And in talking about angels, he made it crystal clear that, no, he's talking about something supernatural. He's talking about something spiritual. He's talking about real beings, not an abstract philosophy or way of life. And that's what the author of Hebrews wants us to understand too. He's talking about a real God, a real being who has spoken in the past through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken by a son. Oh, you mean an angel? No, he says. I mean someone very different from an angel. Verse 2. I mean a son whom God has appointed the heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. This is not a creature. This is the one through whom everything was made. And verse 3. He's the one who sustains all things by the power of his word. 
He's the one that all things were made for. In other words, the Son is the beginning, the middle, and the end. He's the whole story of God. And if everything was created through him and for him, then he himself is not created. So what does that make the Son? If he's not a creature, but he's the creator, what is he? The Son of God is God. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So we discover here that the Son isn't called the Son because he was born. No, he's called the Son because he looks just like his Father. Which you kind of see in families sometimes, don't you? You see sons who look exactly like their fathers, daughters who look exactly like their mums. But the Son of God is not quite like his father. He's exactly like him. He's the exact representation of the very being of God. He's the radiance of his glory. It's like the sun, the S-U-N sun, the big round thing in the sky. And the light of the sun. So you can distinguish between them, can't you? You can distinguish between the sun and the light that comes from the sun, at least conceptually. But you can't separate them. They're inextricably linked. They're one and the same, although capable of being distinguished. And in fact, the only way that you can see the sun is by looking at the radiance of the sun. And when you look at the radiance of the sun, you see the sun. The author of Hebrews is going to great lengths to explain that the son is not a prophet like the Muslims say Jesus is. He's not even an angel like the Jehovah's Witnesses claim. No, God spoke through those sort of figures in the Old Testament. But now, someone qualitatively different has come. A son who fully and completely, perfectly, finally, reveals God because he is God. You see God by looking at his son and when you look at his son, you see God. This is not a philosophy or an abstract idea. This is not a sort of chain of reasoning or something. No, the son of God is a person with a history. You can see it there in the second half of verse 3 where the author says, After he'd provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, if you hadn't twigged to it, that's a highly compressed summary of the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The son who had existed with the father forever came to earth in the flesh to provide purification for our sin by his death on the cross. And he rose from the dead to new life and ascended into heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of God, ruling over all things which were created through him and for him. And so, verse 4, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. It's like a, a son who inherits the family business as opposed to the employees. Well, the angels are the employees. But the son, he 
He's always been greater than the angels, but now he's inherited the business and everyone sees it. He is greater than the angels. He's enthroned as God's right-hand man. Just as the name that he's inherited was always greater than theirs. Four, verse five, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Yeah, the angels of God are called sons of God at various times in the Old Testament. But God never calls them my son. He never says this kind of stuff about them. This kind of exclusive language, quoted here from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel chapter 7, that's reserved not for angels, but weirdly, it's reserved for a human. It's reserved for the Messiah, the king in David's line. David, the, great, the greatest king of Israel, who God promised to him that David's son would rule on his throne forever in a unique relationship with God, a father-son relationship. The son of God is a human, a descendant of David. And yet here's the weird thing that the author of the Hebrews points out in verse 6. When God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. When you go and look up that quote, you discover that it comes from either the Greek version of Deuteronomy 32.43 or from Psalm 97 verse 7. But when you look at them, neither of them are about a human. Neither of them are addressed to a son. Both of them are addressed to God. Let all God's angels worship him, that is, worship God. So what do we make of that? What's going on here? Because the author of the Hebrews seems to be saying that this is about the son, but when you look it up, it's about God. Is this like one of those situations where you're writing an essay and you come across this excellent quote that you've just got to use, but it's kind of got nothing to do with the essay? And so you just rip it out of context and you plonk it in and you hope the reader doesn't notice and they're just impressed by how clever you sounded. Is that what the author to the Hebrews is doing? Is he just sort of fudging the facts a bit? Well, what would he say if you said to him, hang on a minute, wait a minute... I looked up those verses and they're about angels worshipping God. What would he say? I presume he'd say, of course. That's why I put them there. Of course they're about God. The scriptures say about God, let all God's angels worship him. But when God brought his son into the world as the man Jesus, what did the angels do? They actually worshipped Jesus, didn't they? They're the ones who announced to Mary and Joseph that Jesus would be born. They appeared to a group of shepherds praising God for sending a saviour. When Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, at the end of that, the angels came and attended him. At his death, the angels were there in the tomb. They're the ones who announced his resurrection. Jesus didn't worship the angels. No, when Jesus came, the angels worshipped him. So 
So what does that tell you about the angels? And what does it tell you about Jesus? Well, the Psalms written hundreds of years before Jesus spell it out pretty clearly, says the author of Hebrews. If you look at verses 7 and 9, 7 to 9, where he quotes Psalm 104, Psalm 104 says, He, that is God, makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. So what are the angels? It's pretty straightforward. They're God's servants, right? But what does God say about his son? Well, here's what Psalm 45 verse 8 says. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Now, let's just stop and unpack those verses for a moment. Because who is Psalm 45 addressed to? If you go and look it up, and you should do, you discover that it's actually written for a wedding. And it's addressed to the king of Israel. It starts off, My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skilful writer. You are the most excellent of men. And yet, when we get to verse 6, the psalmist suddenly calls this king, this man, God. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And you might say, well, hang on a minute, that can't be about the king, that must be about God, right? But if you keep reading, you realise it's more complex than that. So you have to look at it again. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Sure sounds like God, doesn't it? And it is. But then you read the next verse. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Do you see what's going on here? We've actually got two distinct persons in this psalm who are referred to as God. We've got one in verse 6 of the psalm who's called the most excellent of men and has the eternal throne that God promised to the son of David. And he's called God. But in verse 7 we're told that this God's God has set him above his companions. We've got two distinct persons referred to as God. One who is both God and man, the son of David, the Messiah, whose throne will last forever. And one who is God and not man, who sets the other person called God, the God-man, above everyone else. Turns out God is more complicated than you thought. Are you surprised? That's why the author of Hebrews uh, quotes the next passage. From Psalm 102, and why he sees it as referring to the Son of God. You can see it there in verses 10 to 12. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment, they'll be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Again, if you go back and look at Psalm 102, it clearly refers to God. 
But the author of Hebrews has just shown that the Son is also God. And his throne, the throne of the Messiah, David's throne, will last forever and ever. Psalm 102 applies to God. God the Father and God the Son. The Son of David. The Son of God. Not two separate gods, as though you can separate the sun from its radiance. But one God. But two distinct persons. And as he points out, that is a significant Massive, enormous contrast to the angels. As he points out in verse 13, quoting Psalm 2, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Well, the answer is none. He never said that to an angel. God has never said that an angel will rule forever on David's throne as God's right hand man. But he does say it about the Messiah, the son of David, the son of God. He says it about Jesus. The angels are our servants, as he says in verse 14. But Jesus is our Lord. We don't worship angels. Instead, we join with the angels in worshipping Jesus, the son of God. See, lots of religions claim that God has spoken through angels. That's not an unusual thing. Muhammad claimed that the angel Gabriel came and spoke to him. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, claimed that God spoke to him through an angel called Moroni. The Jehovah's Witnesses claim that Jesus is the archangel Michael. Lots of religions claim that God has spoken through angels. And it's true that in the past, before Jesus, God did speak to his people through the prophets via angels. But now, he's spoken through his son, Jesus. The full and final revelation of God. And if Jesus is the full and final revelation of God, if he's the radiance of God's being, the exact representation of his being, then we don't actually need any other revelation. Because if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. If you know Jesus... You know God. And if that's the case, then, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 2, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. He goes on to say that if God punished Israel for their sin when they turned their back on the law of Moses, which God had given through angels, then how can we possibly think that we'll escape his anger at our sin if we ignore the salvation he revealed through his Son? You're here at uni, you're getting to know more and more about God's world, and that is a terrific thing. Dig into your studies, get to know God's world better and better. Get to know what he's done in the history of his world. But it would be a real shame to just be content with examining the artwork when you could get to know the artist. And what we discover in the Bible is that he can be known. Because he's made himself known in the person of his son, Jesus. That's really what we're on about at the Christian Union. Knowing God and making him known by getting to know Jesus, introducing him to other people. It may just be that 
I'm not very bright, but I can't think of anything else that's more worth doing than getting to know God. Maybe you can come up with something, but I can't. What could be better than getting to know God? And so we want to invite you to join us as we do that, as we get to know God better and better this year and in the years ahead, and as we make him known to other people around you. I think it's the best thing that you could possibly do.